Good morning, my name is Jeff. It's my privilege to look with you at uh, Luke chapter 14 today. The whole chapter, it's long, and it's, it's a bit tricky. It's a bit tricky. I, I think that uh, if you just read it on its face, you might not quite get the point that is being made. So can I encourage you to have a Bible open, read along with me, and let's think hard together about exactly what God is saying, because I think what God is saying to us today is actually very, very important. Let's ask God for his help now. Heavenly Father, do please help us now to understand your word and uh, challenge us to put it into practice in our lives, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I know I've told you this story before, but uh, a few years ago I had to go to a, a course at Christ College, the Presbyterian Theological College in Sydney. It was a, day for, it was a training day for ministers who have student ministers in their church. So I was there and I was with a whole heap of my, my, my peers you know, other ministers in the Presbyterian Church who train student ministers. That morning I had a quiet time and I read from John chapter 5 and verse 44. John chapter 5 verse 44, Jesus is talking to Jewish religious leaders and he says this, he says, How can you believe, since you accept glory from one another, but do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? How can you believe, since you accept glory from one another, but do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? I was, uh, read some comments from John Stott about uh, the passage. Let me quote from him. John Stott wrote this. The same Pharisaic spirit still haunts every child of Adam today. Deeply ingrained in our fallen nature is this thirst for the praise of men seems to be a devilish perversion of our basic psychological need to be wanted and to be loved. We hunger for applause, fish for compliments, thrive on flattery. It is the plaudits of men we want. We're not content with God's approval now or with his well-done, good and faithful servant on the last day. Yet, as Calvin put it, what is more foolish, nay, what is more brutish than to prefer paltry approval of men to the judgment of God. Challenging stuff. So that day, as I went off to Christ College, I made a pact with myself. I said, today I'm going to be with my peers. It's all people that I really want to impress. And the temptation will be to seek their approval in the way that I speak. So today, if I'm about to say something and I realise that it's, it's trying to impress this other person or trying to get them to think well of me, I'm not going to say it. I'm going to stay silent. I didn't open my mouth for the entire day. <laughs> I kept finding myself about to say something. I'd realise I was saying it to make this person think well of me, to make myself look good in front of people, and so I'd have to stop myself. I said basically nothing for the entire day. Now, I suspect I'm not the only person here who has this problem. As John Stott said, this condition is endemic. It's deeply ingrained in our fallen nature. We are we're desperate for the approval of other people. Now, it's very obvious when we're young, we do all kinds of crazy things, stupid things to be accepted by our peers. But I don't think it goes away when you get older. You get better at hiding it. But I don't think it goes away, or at least it hasn't for me. We long for the approval of other people. We want other people to think well of us. All right, let's turn to Luke chapter 14. 
chapter 14 of Luke's Gospel, first scene, Jesus is at a meal. He's eating at the house of an important religious leader. There are lots of other religious leaders there. They're, they're, they're wanting to check Jesus out, so they're listening carefully, watching him carefully. So it's, it's Friday night dinner, perhaps Saturday lunch, probably Friday night dinner. It's the Sabbath day. It's the day when you're not supposed to work. As we come into the scene, there's a man there at the meal with Jesus. He's got some terrible disease and has led to a condition called dropsy. Uh, dropsy is, and I quote, a condition of swollen limbs and tissue resulting from excess bodily fluids. Jesus asks the religious leaders, what's your opinion here? According to God's law, should I heal this man or not? They're silent. So, Jesus miraculously heals him. Luke chapter 14 and verse 1. Have a look with me. Luke chapter 14 and verse 1. One Sabbath, when Jesus went to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee, he was being carefully watched. There in front of him was a man suffering from abnormal swelling of his body. Jesus asked the Pharisees and experts in the law, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. So taking hold of the man, he healed him and sent him on his way. Jesus then points out the silliness of, of, of trying to argue that what he did is contrary to what God wants. The Sabbath should be all about loving God and loving people. The Sabbath, especially on the Sabbath, is the day when you should be doing good for people like Jesus has just done. It's blatantly obvious, even these religious leaders themselves, if, if their child fell down into a well, they'd, even if their ox fell down, they would help up their ox on a Sabbath day. It's blatantly obvious. But notice how the religious leaders respond. They don't go, oh, of course, Jesus, you're right. I mean, duh, it's perfectly obvious. No, no, no. have a look at how they respond. Verse 5. Then he asked them, if one of you has a child or an ox that falls into a well on the Sabbath day, will you not immediately pull it out? And they had nothing to say. What's going on? Why are they silent? Why won't they just agree with the obvious? Say to Jesus, yeah, of course, we've been so stupid. Why are they silent? Well, at the meal, Jesus then tells a story. It's, it's a story that sounds like advice about table manners. But Jesus reveals that what he says has a deeper meaning. Have a look with me. Have a look with me at verse 7. And see if you can see what Jesus would mean here. Verse 7, when he noticed how the guests picked the places of honour at the table, he told them this parable. When someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honour. For a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. If so... The host who invited both of you will come and say to you, give this person your seat. Then, humiliated, you'll have to take the least important place. But when you're invited, take the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he will say to you, friend, move up to a better place. Then you'll be honoured in the presence of all the other guests. 
Sounds like dinner party advice. Strange dinner party advice. Don't, uh, don't compete with each other about finding the best seat. But now look in verse 11, because Jesus says this is not just dinner party advice. Verse 11, for all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. What's going on? What's going on? Remember the situation. Jesus is in this theological controversy. He's shown the religious leaders, you're obviously wrong in what you think about the Sabbath. But they're silent. Why are they silent? Well, because it's not actually a theological issue that's going on here. What's going on is they're too embarrassed in front of each other to admit that they're wrong. They're more concerned about what their fellow religious leaders think than about what God thinks. That's why they're silent. So let's think about the parable. What's this parable then saying? Who's the host? Who's the host in this parable? I think the host is God, isn't it? And what are they trying to do as they compete for places at the banquet? They're trying to look good in front of each other. And so what's the point that Jesus is making? He's saying, worry more about what the host thinks than what the other guests think. Worry more about what God thinks than what your fellow religious leaders think. Humble yourselves before your other religious leaders. Let God do the exalting. See how it works? See what he's saying? Now he turns to the host. And... and that's the host of the banquet, and, and he's got another parable. Um, again, it sounds like dinner party advice, R- rather strange dinner party advice. He says, when you invite someone to your parties, don't invite people who can pay you back. Invite people who can't pay you back. Have a, have a look, verse 12. Then Jesus said to his host, when you give a luncheon or dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or sisters, your relatives or your rich neighbours. If you do, they may invite you back and so you will be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Sounds like dinner party advice. Quite strange dinner party advice. But notice again just the last thing that Jesus says because he's not just giving dinner party advice. Still in verse 14, although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Who repays you at the resurrection? God repays you at the resurrection. So what's he saying to this host? Don't look for reward from your fellow religious leaders, look for reward from God. Worry more about what God thinks than what these people around you think. At this point, someone pipes up. Uh, they talk about, oh, how great it'll be to be in the feast in God's kingdom. But Jesus replies with another parable. He talks about a man who's preparing a great banquet. He invites some people. We've seen it vividly acted out here for us, haven't we? Uh, But when the time comes for the banquet, they all refuse to come. Why? They're worried about other stuff, their real estate, their business, their family. All these things are more important than the wedding, than, than the banquet. Verse 15. 
When one of those at the table with him heard this, he said to Jesus, Blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. Jesus replied, A certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, I've just bought a field and I must go and see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I just bought five yoke of oxen and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Still another said, I just got married, so I can't come. Okay, we're still at the table, still in this Friday night dinner at the Pharisee's place. What's the significance of this parable? Who's the host here? I think it's God again, isn't it? God's got a banquet. Who are the people who are making all these excuses not to come? I think it's the religious leaders again. And why are they not coming? Well, it's, it's, it's earthly reasons. It's, it's business. It's real estate. It's family. They're, they're putting this stuff of earth before God's invitation. Why? It comes back to the same issue, doesn't it? Why do we want to live in nice real estate? Make other people think well of us. Why do we want to succeed in business? Because we crave the approval of other people. What's going on with our, our desire to have families that look great? We're more worried about what people think than what God thinks. And so it's the same point again. He's warning these religious leaders, stop being so worried about what everybody else thinks. Worry more about what God thinks. In the parable, in the, parable the, the, the host of the banquet is actually really angry. He's angry that his invitation will be rejected. And so he opens up the invitation to, uh, to, to other people. And I think Jesus is talking about how he's, he's, ta- he's inviting tax collectors and, um, and prostitutes and fishermen to be his disciples rather than religious leaders. And then, then he, he, he talks about opening the banquet up even more. And here I think Jesus is hinting that the, the gospel will go to the Gentiles and not just to the Jews. Verse 21. The servant came back and reported this to the master. Then the owner of the house became, became angry and ordered his servant, go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and, and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind and the lame. Sir, the servant said, what you ordered has been done, but there's still room. Then the master told his servant, go out to the roads and country lanes and compel them to come in so, so that my house will be full. I tell you, not one of those who were invited will get a taste of my banquet. Okay, that was scene one. What a dinner party. Dinner party at the Pharisee's house. Second scene. Uh, Second scene, this scene, Jesus is travelling, crowds are following him. But I think even though we change scenes, I think Jesus has still got the same thing in his mind here because he warns them about the same issue that he's been talking about. He warns the crowds. He says, if you want to follow me... You've got to worry more about what God thinks than even what the people closest to you think. Now, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem to die. Uh, he's speaking very specific, very um, literally here. If you, want to, if you wanted in that day to follow him, he was on his way to Jerusalem to, to die. So you, you weren't following him to popularity. You were following him to death. But I think the principle applies more broadly. You want to follow Jesus... 
then his opinion becomes even more important than, than that of the people closest to you. But by contrast, you have to hate them, not, not, not actually hate them, but prefer Jesus to them. Verse, verse 25. Large crowds were travelling with Jesus and turning to them, he said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Following Jesus means he becomes number one. His opinion is more important than that of anybody else. You've got to seek his approval above the approval of people. And so Jesus now says, you want to follow me, then you've got to count the cost. You've got to count the cost. Are you willing to seek my approval above that of other people? Count the cost. Verse 28. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Why don't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and are not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying, this person began to build and wasn't able to finish. When I was living in Newtown, in a little townhouse, and next to us was this high-rise building, half-finished. They ran out of money halfway through and it just sat there. Verse 31, well, suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. When he first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000, if he's not able, he'll send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. That's a very specifically and literally true there on that day as Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. But I think it applies more broadly. He becomes number one. Jesus goes on to compare his disciples to salt. Like salt in a meal, they'll be, they'll be noticeable. You can tell when there's salt in the meal. It, it stands out that they'll be different. For a disciple of Jesus, that will mean being unpopular. And so once again, if they want to be his disciples, they need to worry more about what God thinks than what people think. Uh, Jesus says, if salt isn't salty, it's, it's, it's useless. If you can't notice it, it's, a, it's worth nothing, worthless. And in the same way, if a disciple is not willing to stand out as different, even if it means being unpopular, they're useless. Verse 34, salt is good... But if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's fit neither for the soil nor for the manure pile. It's thrown out. Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. All right, we made it. Well done. 35 verses. If you fell asleep, come back. Come back. Um, what's the big idea here? What's there in Luke 14? It all flows out of this dinner table conversation, doesn't it? Jesus heals the guy on the Sabbath. It's blatantly obvious that that is the right thing to do, but the religious leaders can't bring themselves to say it, can't bring themselves to admit it. Why? It's nothing to do with theology. It's because, like Jesus said in John 5.44, how can they believe if they're seeking glory from one another instead of glory from the only God? They can't. They're so worried about what other people think, they've lost 
thinking what God thinks at all. And so story after story, he challenges them. The story about the people competing for places. Worry more about what the host thinks than what the other guests think. Or the host who, who invites people, thinking about, invite the sort of people who God will reward you for rather than who will reward you themselves. Or, or, or then the story of the, 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 the master who sends out the invitation, but they all refuse the invitation because of their earthly stuff, their, their, their real estate, their business, their, 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 their family. Over and over again, Jesus is saying, worry about what God thinks, not what other people think. And then second scene, he's walking along, the crowds are with him, he's on his way to Jerusalem to die, and he warns them again, you want to be my disciple, it means being salty, it means standing out. And that'll mean being unpopular. It means you've got to put me above even husband, wife, father, daughter, children, brother, sister. Stop worrying what other people think. Worry more about what God thinks. Got to count the cost of standing out like salt. Okay. All right, well, let's think for a moment about applying this passage to ourselves A friend, God is inviting you to an eternal banquet. He's offering you a place in heaven. A place in his forever kingdom. Very, very easy to get there. You just accept the invitation. Rely on Jesus. Jesus died for your sins. Jesus rose again from the dead. If you now ask God to forgive you your sins and accept you into heaven, he will do it. He will do it. He promises he'll do it. He'll do it as a free gift paid for by Jesus. In that sense, being a Christian, it costs nothing. It's free. It's by grace alone. But in another sense, being a Christian is very costly. Because it means you become part of God's kingdom. Where Jesus is your Lord. Where Jesus is your boss. And so being a Christian, it means that you need to be more concerned about pleasing and obeying Jesus than pleasing and obeying the people around you, even your husband or wife or children. Jesus has to become your number one source of approval. Jesus has to become the the number one person that you're trying to please. But as I discovered on that day at Christ College, it's not easy, is it? Seeking people's approval, it is deeply ingrained in us. We're so desperate to look good in front of other people, to have other people like us. So friends, let me try to talk you out of it today. Let me me give you three reasons why seeking the approval of other people is something we just we really need to work hard on getting rid of. Three reasons, three problems with our desperate need to be popular with people. Firstly, it's sinful. Second, it's dangerous. And thirdly, it's growth stunting. Sinful, dangerous, growth stunting. Let's think about each of those. Uh, Firstly, we need to realise that our craving for for, for other people's approval is actually sinful. Um, Let me quote again from John Stott because I think he very helpfully points this out. He shows that it's idolatry. Seeking the approval of people is a form of idolatry. 
Uh, You receive glory from one another, Jesus said to his Jewish contemporaries, and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God. His designation of the Father in this context as the only God was deliberate and significant. Glory must be sought from God alone precisely because he is God. It is to God alone that we are ultimately responsible and must give account of ourselves. It is to him alone, therefore, that we should look for commendation or vindication. Do you think he's right? Is it idolatrous for us to seek the approval of other people, to be so concerned that other people think well of us? Is that idolatry? How is it idolatrous? Well, I'm going to give a couple of ways. Who's the idol? Well, firstly, the idol is me. Um, I want everyone to think well of me. I want everyone to bow down and worship me. Isn't Jeff great? Well, it's only God who deserves that kind of worship, not me. But not only that, I'm making you an idol as well, aren't I? I'm so concerned about what you think. Well, you're not God. It's really only God's opinion that matters, both now and forever. It is idolatrous, isn't it? the way we crave the approval of other people. It's actually deeply sinful. A little bit later on in Luke's Gospel, Jesus talks to the the religious leaders again, and he says, oh, you guys, you, you love your flowing robes, you love the best spots in the synagogue, you love it when people call you rabbi. And then he says something, he says, he says, these people will be punished most severely. Why? Because as religious leaders, they're supposed to be getting everyone to worship God and obey God, and instead they're trying to get people to love them. God hates that. To steal the glory that belongs to him. To seek glory from people instead of him. It is profoundly idolatrous. It makes God angry. Friends, more than idolatrous and more than sinful, it's, it's dangerous as well. Millions of people in this world have refused to become Christians because they're worried about what other people think. They have refused the invitation of God to his banquet because of what their family or their community will think. We prayed just today for Andrew and Joanna Wong and how difficult it is in Japan to get people to put their trust in Jesus. Even if they realise that it's true, the problem is, particularly in a shame culture like that, you can't do it in front of your peers. I had this exact example happen to me the other day. I was talking to a lady uh, who's come along a few times to our church and I said to her, how's it going? Are you understanding what's going on? She said, yes. Sir. She's from China, communist China, didn't believe in God before. She said, well, now I can see that there is a God. Um, I, can, I, I believe what you're saying about Jesus is amazing. I've never seen anything like this before. I, I can see that he could forgive me and, and, and give me eternal life. I said, well, great, become a Christian. She said, I'm sorry, I can't. Why not? Well, my parents would have a heart attack because I I wouldn't be offering them the ancestor worship. And and my husband, well, you know, he's brought me all the way out from China here and now I'm going to go against what he wants and my children... There's no way I could ever do it. Desperately dangerous to to worry more about the approval of people than of God. It's sinful, it's dangerous... And then thirdly, it's, it's growth-stunting. We're talking about this in Bible study. The thing that 
stops us from standing up and standing out as Christians more than anything else, we all agreed, is that we're worried about what people think. It's what stops us talking about Jesus. It's what stops us from living out our faith in front of the world, in front of our workplace, workmates. Instead of being salty, we admitted that we've become insipid and tasteless. Instead of seeking God's kingdom, we do focus our life on real estate and business and family so that we look good in front of other people. It stunts our growth as Christians. So friends, here's the point. If you want to really live as a Christian, you're going to need to count the cost. You're going to need to ask yourself, am I willing to be salty? Am I willing to be unpopular for Jesus? That's not easy, is it? Like I found out at that conference, our desire to be popular with people is deeply ingrained. So friends, can I encourage you um, to pray for yourselves and for each other about this? Let's, uh, let's do that now. Let's ask God to help us overcome our desperate need for human approval. Our gracious God and loving Heavenly Father, we admit that we are often insipid instead of salty. We're so worried about what other people think that we remain silent, we don't stand up and stand out for Jesus. We're so sorry because we can see that this is really us making an idol for ourselves, wanting ourselves to have the glory instead of you. We're so sorry for the way it makes other people an idol because we're looking for their approval instead of yours. We admit that it's sinful, we admit that it's dangerous, we admit that it's stunting our growth. So Father, will you please work in us by your spirit and help us, help us to recognise that your approval is so much more important. Free us, we pray, from our desperate desire to be, have the approval of people. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.